0: Hi, this is Robert Furrow and welcome to Truth Quest Podcast. This is our Q&A where we look at questions through the lens of Scripture. Our desire is to know what God's Word says so we can know what to believe. Rather than just taking whatever we've been taught, we want to search the Scriptures, make sure that what we believe is true. I've been the pastor of Calvary Tucson for the last 36 years. It's really good to be here with you guys. Uh, We take questions from both YouTube and Facebook. All you've gotta do is write the word question or put a question mark in front of it and then write out your question and go ahead and submit that and we will be looking at them. We have questions that are prepared beforehand and we have questions that we're taking uh, from the comment section. It's good to see you guys uh, starting to sign on. So we'll get right at our first question today which has to do with the great falling away. Um, of 2 Thessalonians. Uh, This is a question that was submitted to the comment section on our YouTube channel. And um, I've got a scripture pulled up here for us to be able to look at. So let me go ahead and get that up for you. And this is 2 Thessalonians chapter two. I wanted to start here. Let me just say this. There's two different thoughts about what the great falling away could be. Uh, It's the word, we get our word apostate from it. And so it could mean a great falling away in the last days meaning that there are people who walk away from god that society as a whole walks away from god um, schools churches uh different organizations no longer want to have anything to do with god when when i was a kid we said the pledge of allegiance every day in school today you don't they, you don't do that uh we have we are living in a day and a time when people want to seek their own way and are calling good evil and evil good, just like in the days of the judges. And the, that great falling away could very well be what it's talking about. And we know that even if this passage isn't talking about that, that's a sign of the last days, the great apostasy. We'll talk about that in a moment. But also, this could be a reference to the rapture. And, and look at how this is worded. So we've got First, uh, 2 Thessalonians Chapter 2. And it says, For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming uh, to you was not in vain. But even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated in Philippi, as you know, we were bold to speak God to you, um, uh, uh, speak the gospel of God to you in much conflict. For our exhortation did not come from error or uncleanliness, nor was it deceit. But I want to make sure I've got the right place. uh, Yes, I'll. You know what? I'm in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. That's funny. Let me go ahead and get to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. I'm like, this isn't sounding right. Okay, so 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, the great apostasy. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. So that would be the rapture. Um, Sometimes people will say the rapture is never taught in the Bible. However, just references like this of our gathering together to him. I realize that you might believe something different about when the gathering will happen, but it is a rapture and a resurrection and is both spoken of in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and 1 Thessalonians chapter five. So it says, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled either by spirit or by word or by letter as if from us as though the day of Christ had come. So they'd gotten a letter and they were shaken or they had gotten word that they were in the day of the Lord. They believed that they were in the tribulation period. And Paul says, don't be soon shaken by this. He says, as if from us, in verse three, let no one deceive you by any means. So we know that when the last days are brought up, there are a lot of deceivers that are out there. He says, don't let anyone deceive you by any means for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. The only thing that is said has to happen before the rapture of the church in Second Thessalonians is the falling away this falling away has to come first now as i said this great falling away could itself be the rapture of the church the word is apostate but it means to be removed um or yeah it means to be removed and um it could be that and that there are some who believe it but we also know that in the last days there's also going to be this great apostasy um, of the faith. Verse 3 says, let no one deceive you by any means Or, or um, that great falling away comes first and then it says and the man of sin is revealed. It doesn't say the man of sin has to be revealed first. It says the great falling away happens first and then the man of sin is revealed. So the great apostasy happens prior to or at the beginning of the tribulation period and then the man of sin is revealed. It doesn't say the man of sin is revealed first. Again often we'll get people who will want to argue, and they'll say, well, why does the Bible say that the man of sin has to be revealed first? It doesn't say that. The only thing it says that has to happen is the great apostasy. And I want to show you another verse here uh, that speaks of that great apostasy in Second Timothy. And uh, again, w- uh, whether or not, this is 2 Timothy chapter 4, whether or not that great apostasy is spoken of, or if it's talking about the rapture of the church, um, is debated, you know, but The fact that there will be a great apostasy is not debated. Look here at with me at 2 Timothy 4. We want to start reading in verse 3. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. So that will tickle their ears. Tell them what they want to hear. This is the church today. The church to a large degree, the largest churches in America, the most popular preachers in America, Are are prosperity preachers, they're tickling people's ears. They're telling them what they want to hear. They're talking about enthusiasm. They're talking about, you know, the way you feel. Everything in the Bible is applied to you. It all has to do about you being the center of the universe. It goes on to say, they will heap up for themselves teachers who will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to fables. But you be watchful in these things. Endure affliction, do the work of evangelists, fulfill your ministry. Now, I also want to read to you 1st Timothy chapter 4. It's easy to remember 1st and 2nd Timothy chapter 4. But here in, um, yeah, let's see chapter 2nd Timothy chapter, I said 1st Timothy, right? Chapter 4. So here it says, Now, the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and the doctrines of demons. These false teachings that these teachers who are tickling people's ears are called deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy and having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. Uh, Both Daniel and Revelation talk about things getting better and things getting worse. the 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 righteous will become even more righteous the filthy will become even more filthy there will be in the last days righteousness and purification happening at the same time and these are a sign of the last days and um, i think we're seeing a lot of people today who are deconstructing their faith they're believing things they're they're rejecting god despite the fact of the evidence that we have within the pages of scripture it's not good enough for them and this is a sign of the last days. By the way, another sign of the last days is that lawlessness is going to abound. And we're living in a day when lawlessness is is abounding. Israel will be a nation again. 70 AD, it wasn't a nation. We are the first generation to ever have Israel as a nation. And Jerusalem back under uh, Israeli control. Jesus said a prophecy from Jesus that Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. And um, so the great apostasy is the falling away of um, really of the world away from it. The Bible says of these last day saints, they'll be lovers of themselves and lovers of money. They'll have a form of godliness, but they deny the power. They don't have any life changing power in the word of God. It's just there to make them happy, to make them feel good. It's feel good Christianity. And we should be aware of it because we are living in the last days and we want to be aware of those things. So it's good to see you guys. Good to see that you have logged in here. We have people that are submitting questions both from YouTube and Facebook. Make sure that you write question in front of it because we have a lot of comments. I've got to make my way through here and determine what's a question. Uh, so if you have a question, then write the word question or a Q or a question mark in front of it to help me identify it and um, read it a couple of times make sure it makes sense and if you're asking about a passage what did jesus mean when he said this i would like to read it in context so take some time to look up the passage if you would and um go ahead and give it to me and we'll take a look at what god's word has uh to say all right so it's good to see you guys we have our first question from barbara barbara brings up our Q&A that we had on Wednesday night. Barbara says, question, Pastor. On Wednesday Q&A, you answered my question about animal sacrifices and said that sacrifices would start again when the temple was rebuilt. Will this pertain to Jewish people? Yes, it does pertain to Jewish people. So the there will be a, a final temple. There will be a lot, la- and, and we don't know whether that's gonna start being built before the tribulation period or in the tribulation period the temple could be built really quickly. There are people making preparations for it today when the temple is rebuilt, sacrifices will resume in the temple. And this is Jewish. You're not going to have Gentiles who are going to be going to the temple who will be um, who, who will be giving sacrifices. It'll be Jewish. And then um, you have the millennium, when you have sacrifices that are given as Jesus sits on the throne of David and rules over Israel, and I believe to a memorial, they are giving sacrifices. These sacrifices speak of a memorial of what Jesus did for us, kind of like we take communion as a living memorial of the covenant of his blood that was shed for us for the forgiveness of our sins. And um, the, uh, this is something to be watching for. In the last days, the conflict taking place on the Temple Mount is something to be watching for in the last days. But yes, it has to do with the um, with being with the Jews, their rejection of God, rebuilding the temple, or rejection of the Messiah, excuse me, rebuilding the temple, and then sacrifices being restored once again in that temple. Thank you, Barbara, for your question. I really appreciate it. Uh, We have another one here from Sharon. Sharon says regarding Abraham and Sarah, do you think that they would have uh, potentially waited, um, uh, waited Ishmael patiently, um, waited Ishmael would not have arrived if this man of God working here um thank you sharon for your question so i think you're asking if abraham and sarah had been patient when they were waiting for isaac then they wouldn't have had the work of the flesh which would have been ishmael now i think that we could say that ishmael is a work of the flesh it was not god's plan god gives us choices and with choices there are consequences the consequence was that he had a son by the name of Ishmael. And that the consequences is that it created conflicts in the region. But remember that God said that he was gonna bless Ishmael and that 12 princes would come from him. Um, but Sarah took her handmaiden, Hagar, gave her to Abraham and said, have a child through her. This is something that was done in their day through concubines and Abraham did it and followed Sarah's advice and uh, and did it and had a child that was a child of the flesh rather than of the spirit when god has us waiting and god has us waiting for a lot of things the bible says that we are to wait on the lord and those who wait upon the lord will renew their strength they will mount up with wings like eagles god gives us promises and brings those promises to pass for us but he makes us wait for them and why we have to patiently endure why we ask and keep asking Uh, Jesus taught us to pray and persist in prayer. I'm not quite sure why. I think it has something to do with faith. The interesting thing is is that Abraham was the father of faith, and yet he goes down to Egypt when there's a a famine in the land. Um, He has another child with another woman when God doesn't do it fast enough. um, If Abraham, the father of faith, struggles with faith, How much more do we think that we're gonna struggle with trusting God and walking in faith? Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. God had promised that through him, a child who'd come, uh, who would bless the entire world, one of his seeds, one of his descendants, he wanted to do it through his flesh. Oh Lord, he said to him, let Ishmael live before you. God said, no, but it shall be through Sarah that all of the world shall be blessed. And we know that that was through uh, Isaac that all of the world became blessed. It was a great promise of the fulfillment. Imagine how good Genesis would mean very little to us if all of the promises and prophecies in it didn't come to pass. Today we have every nation in the world that has been blessed by Jesus. There's an influence of Christ around the world that is unlike anything else that this world has ever seen. And um, all of these things are foretold in the Old Testament. So thank you, um, Sharon, for that. I do believe there is much for us to learn when it comes to faith and trusting in God, not having works of the flesh. I think that we get impatient, we do things, and we have works of the flesh, and there are consequences, and God works around them just like he did with Isaac. But I think that there is much to learn for us from studying um, Abraham and Isaac. Uh, So, another question about Ishmael, J.G. says, are Arabs the descendants of Ishmael? Not all of them, but some of them, well, yeah, some of them are. So, um, yeah, the Arab peoples, remember, um, the majority of them, I would say, yes, come from Abraham. But there are some descendants um, like the Moabites and the Ammonites, which would have been in the region and maybe even considered to be Arabs uh, that came from Lot, right? And then you have some other people groups that were around that at least interacted with the descendants of, um, of Abraham. So yeah. Um, Abraham is the father of the Arab uh, um, the Arab peoples around the world and the father of the Jews around the world. There are some people groups that might be connected to the Arabs that were not descended from Abraham, but the vast majority of them were. All right, hopefully that's helpful, J.G. I appreciate your question. We have another question here from Jari. Uh, Jari says, I'm good to see you, by the way, Jari. And if you're... Uh, Uh, watching this Q&A here for the very first time. Really glad you're here. We take questions from YouTube and Facebook. Just to write your question down, submit the word question into the comment section with your question behind it. Reread it a couple of times, add any references that you might want us to look up. We'll be able to look them up and take a look at the word of God while we're making our way through. All right, so Jari says, why did Jesus say to John, behold your mother instead of his siblings? If Jesus was the only kid, it would have been a good idea. But since Jesus had other siblings, they would have been. So yeah, so Jesus has, the Bible tells us that he had sisters and that he had three brothers. There was Joseph, we take it Joseph Jr., right? Got Joseph and then Joseph Jr. You've got Simon and you've got James. James became the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. And Jesus appeared to James after his resurrection before his ascension. So, but remember, his brothers at this point had thought Jesus was crazy, had thought he was out of his mind. And so Jesus puts Mary in care of John because John is there at the cross. This is um, John who wrote, the youngest of the disciples, who wrote uh, the book of John. And he puts him in his care because he's there at the cross. And it says that John took her into his house and cared for her from that day forward. And so, um, yeah, the, the the brother, Jude eventually, one of his brothers, Judas, wrote um, the book of Jude. Did I talk about him? The Simon, Judas, uh, Joseph, and James. Yeah, so he had four half brothers. Um, and so, um, they eventually may have taken care of Mary, we don't know. But we know that Jesus had John do that for uh, for his own reasons and because I think that they thought that Jesus was crazy at that particular point, so John stepped in uh, to be able to take care of Mary. It was something, what a, what a privilege that God would choose John, the youngest of the disciples, to care for his mother. And I don't know what that says about the brothers other than at this point at the cross, they don't believe okay so thank you jari for your question i really appreciate that so we have another question here from albert albert good to see you uh good to have you guys joining us uh, for our q a so albert says david was a man after god's own heart and is considered israel's greatest king yet second kings 23:25 says there was no king like josiah is the writer claiming he was greater than david all right, well, let's take a look at that. Second uh, Kings, Second Kings, I don't know, taking a look at it, it's gonna help much, uh, 23, but it might, Twenty three, twenty five. So So, um, let's see, 25. Almost there, almost there, uh, 25. All right, so if I've got it right, Second Kings 23, 25. Okay, so let's go ahead and take a look at this and put it up on the screen for you. And here it says, uh, verse 25, Now before him there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all of his heart, with all of his soul and with all of his might, according to the law of Moses, nor after him did any arise like him. So I'm not sure that there is any kind of contradiction here. We do know that David was a man after God's own heart. And uh, thanks for that uh, question, Um, Albert. We do know that David was a man after God's own heart, but that Josiah sought God unlike any other king, uh, that was ever before him, who turned to him with uh, to the Lord with all his heart, with soul, his might, and according to the law of Moses, not after him into to arise in this day. So we could say that Josiah sought God in a greater way than David did. David was a sought God in, in a great way, uh, but I don't think that there is a passage, and maybe I'm wrong, that says that David sought God in a greater way than anyone else. Um, what a great thing for Josiah to be known for, by the way. To seek God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And what a really good thing for us to do. We know that, that we're commanded to, to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. But to seek him, to say, Lord, I want to know you. I want to know your word. I want to know about you. What a, what, a, what a great application for us. Uh, I don't think there is a um, discrepancy between this and David, I think we can just say that Josiah sought God in a greater way than any other king did. And it gives the list of things that are here. Doesn't mean that David didn't see God. It just means that Josiah really and truly turned uh, to the Lord and sought after him uh, wholeheartedly. All right, so thank you Albert for your question. I really appreciate you. So we have a question here from John. And uh, John comes to us from YouTube and John says, H- uh, hello pastor, bless you, thank you. John, God bless you as well. Is all anger sin? Uh, the answer to that is no. And I can think of several things that you could be angry about that would not be sin. So the Bible says, be angry, but don't sin. Jesus, of course, was angry and tipped over the tables that were in the temple. And so it's possible for us to be angry and not have it be an outburst of wrath, to have it be righteous anger. We ought to be angry at what the devil is doing to people around us. We ought to be angry with Satan and the work that he's doing. Set our hearts and our minds upon God, but be angry towards the life that is taken uh, of an unborn child in a womb. The Bible says in the Old Testament that a life would be required for a life because they were made in the image of God. Last Wednesday, we had a question about animals uh, and uh, mistreating animals. Killing an animal is something different than killing a person because a person is made in the image of God. And we have all of these these babies that are being killed uh, in the millions around the world and i think that god is going to judge the world because of that and i think that we should be angry that those things are happening um, when you are angry you should fast you seek god when you grieve you should fast and you should seek god uh, you should um, maybe speak against the wickedness that that you have become angry about if that's the case but um, yeah, not all anger is sin. There certainly are outbursts of wrath, and that's, all, that's, that's sinful. Jesus, it says, went and deliberately made a whip and then turned the tables over and drove them out. I don't think that was an outburst of anger. That was something that was calculated, that seed that was a righteous anger, and that is one of the best pictures that you and I get about what um, righteous anger is all about. Um, I heard someone say recently, That to hate is wrong, but you hate Satan and you hate the work of the devil and you hate sin. So there are certain things that we're angry about and there are certain things that we hate. So thank you very much, John, for your question. I really do appreciate that. Um, We have another question here from Saved by Grace. Good to see you guys all here, by the way. If you're visiting, uh, if you're here for the very first time, if you're visiting here, we wanna welcome you. If you're visiting with us for the very first time, uh, then we're really glad you're here. We hope that you are blessed by the time that we spend looking at the Word of God. That's our heart, that's our desire. God's Word is alive and active. It works in the hearts of those who believe. We wanna make sure that we are answering questions in the lens or the light of God's Word. So, Saved by Grace says, In the book of Job, how long do you think Job was afflicted? Uh, Saved by grace. Thank you for your question. Uh, And I have no idea. I don't know. Sorry. Um, I don't know that the book of Job ever talks about it. It was a significant amount of time, as in months, not days, not weeks. Uh, we We know his friends came to visit him. We know that they thought something had gone wrong in his life that he was, that he had done something wrong to deserve what he was going through, what he was facing. Uh, But we know that God was doing what God does. And he never answers the question. He never answers any of the questions Job's friends ask or that Job asks. Instead, God shows up and basically says to Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the world? And he gives him these several questions that Job has to say, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. I'm glad I'm not the object lesson that Job was. I hope that that's not the case. But I do know that we can, it can receive all the things that God has for us and what God has for us. So I don't know. I'm sorry. The answer might be out there. I just don't know. Remember, I'm answering these things kind of off the top of my head to some degree. So there are going to be questions that I just don't have any idea about. All right, but thank you um, very much uh, for your question. I really do uh, appreciate that. All right, Um, so if you have a question, then you just submit the question in the comment section, put the word question or question mark in front of it, read it a couple of times and then submit it, make sure that it makes sense. Uh, So we have another question about Job from Kevin. Kevin says, question, why do you think the devil lets Job's wife live and not his children and his um um, material possessions is it because you think he knew she'd say just curse god and die again um a lot of times kevin hypothetical questions are just really really difficult you can take a stab at him you can take a guess at it uh, but for whatever reason his goods were taken away and restored His children died and were replaced. Uh, His wife could have died and been replaced as well. So God could have done it, but God chose not to. God chose to keep her there. I do think that it was a real problem that she said, just curse God and die. Um, You want a little bit more compassion from your spouse, I think, uh, than that. But God's taking him through all of these things that he might do his work in Job's life and um I don't, uh, I don't know this hypothetical question. Wh- why God did not take Job's wife. I think maybe Job was glad that he didn't. I hope. <laughs> All right. So thank you uh, very much for your question. I really appreciate that. Let's see. So we have a question here from Lisa. Lisa says, Question. Will the Jews know when the temple is rebuilt, Jesus is the king? Not initially. So what we do know is that the nation of Israel is in the process right now of being restored. That the land was, they were, they were uh, dispersed from the land, the land was destroyed, uh, it laid barren for all of these years, and yet there were all of these Old Testament promises that said that God was going to bring them back into the land and establishing them in the land. They were gonna be born again in a day and that God was gonna give it to their descendants forever. Because Israel was not in the land and had been dispersed, there were a lot of theologians that came up with other ideas as to replacement theology. These promises are for the church, they're not for Israel. Nevertheless, God had a plan to restore the nation of Israel. And he started by restoring the land in Ezekiel 36. God said to the land, Get ready, my people are about ready to come. God did this in the late 1800s and early 1900s. Then massive amounts of Jewish people moved to Israel so that there are are five or six million that live in Israel today. Uh, there were only a few thousand that lived there at the end of the 1800s. So that's that's been a fulfillment of scripture. Uh, and then God restored the people to the land, restored the nation of of Jerusalem, brought Jerusalem back under Israeli control. All these things are talked about. Then in Ezekiel 38, 36 through 40, you read of the rebuilding of the temple. And then finally, the restoration of the people of Israel to God. In other words, they will receive God as uh, Jesus, as their Messiah. They have rejected him now, but as a nation, they will receive him as their Messiah. Romans 11, 26 says, and they will all be saved. That God, that god has given them over until the time of the gentiles is fulfilled and then all of israel will be saved zachariah 12:10. and god will pour out a spirit of mercy and grace on jerusalem and they will mourn for him as one who mourns for an only son uh, when they look upon me, God speaking in that uh, in that prophecy, by the way, whom they pierced. And we ask, when did they pierce God in Jerusalem? When Jesus came, it's yet another Old Testament passage that tells us of the complexity of God, that not only would the Messiah come, but the Messiah would be God and they would pierce God in, in, in uh, Jerusalem. So, no, they don't know it when the temple starts to be built. It's when the abomination of desolation happens and the Antichrist sets up a statue to be worshiped, which the false, peace, the false beast gives, excuse me, the false prophet gives the right or the ability for it to be able to speak. And then they will realize we made a mistake. He, he, he shuts off um, sacrifices. He sets up his statue in the temple and demands to be worshiped. And then they know they've made a mistake and that i believe is when they turn to jesus as their messiah watch israel he is it, it, the nation of israel is the super sign and take a close look at what's happening today with russia with um with iran wanting to attack israel this is i think a fulfillment of ezekiel uh, 38 and 39 of Zechariah 12, the first part of the chapter there, that talks about all nations coming against Israel and God fighting for Israel. And even during the tribulation period, because they turn to him in the middle of it, they're in the tribulation period, but God even takes them into the wilderness and protects them supernaturally. So they will receive Jesus as their King and as their Messiah, what a day that will be. I look forward to that day and what God's gonna do when he restores uh, the nation of Israel. Keep your eyes, on the nation of Israel, keep your eyes on the skies. Jesus said, when you see all of these things happen, then know that, um, the, uh, that, that your redemption is near. Look up because you know your redemption is near. Uh, we are about to get into, on our Sunday studies, Luke 17, where Jesus talks about the rapture of the church, and then Luke 21, and we're going to spend a lot of time talking about the last days and what Jesus said about the last days. I really look forward to that. We're almost there. We're in Luke chapter um, chapter 17 today, verses one through 10, uh, but we're going to be soon in Luke 21, and we're gonna spend a lot of time talking about what Jesus said about the last days, really having a clear understanding uh, for that. So thank you, Lisa. I really appreciate your question. Nice to have you here with us, by the way. Uh, we have another question from Brian. Brian, uh, good to see you. Thank you for sharing with us. If you are joining us here for the very first time, really glad you're here. Uh, You can submit any questions about the Bible, about prophecy, about apologetics, whatever it is that you have on your heart, uh, you can submit that. Uh, We'll take a look at the Word of God uh, with the question that you give. Uh, So Brian says, do the seven churches in the beginning of Revelation still exist today in some form? So here's the idea for the seven churches that are in Israel. First of all, they were literal churches. There were there was a church in Thyatira. There was a church in Sardis. There was a church in Smyrna. Uh, there was a church in Philadelphia, in Ephesus. These were real places that had real churches. And when you do a study of these seven churches, it's really good to go back and look at the region where these cities are, what was happening in those cities. A lot of times what Jesus says in these letters is connected to the historical aspect of where these churches are at. Then you can take these seven churches, stretch them out like a stencil, and lay them over the top of church history. And you see that you've got the churches that represent sections of church history. This is really a fascinating study and you come to two last days churches. You come to ones that are becoming more filthy and ones that are becoming more purified. The Faithful Church of Philadelphia and the Lukewarm Church of Laodicea. And they are both in existence in the last days when Jesus returns. That's the end of chapter 3 you have a door open in heaven and a voice from heaven like a trumpet saying, come up here. I believe that's the rapture of the church in Revelation chapter four, as you have the end of the church age and the church isn't brought up again until the end of the tribulation period, uh, all the way in the book of Revelation. So it really is pretty amazing. Um, And then, we could also say that there are types of churches. There are churches like Laodicea, there are lukewarm churches, there's churches like Philadelphia, there there, are faithful churches, there are churches like like Ephesus, there are loveless churches, there's churches like Smyrna who are persecuted churches. So there are types of these churches around the world today. So I do believe that they still exist in a couple of different ways. Laodicea and Philadelphia um, existing today as the faithful and the lukewarm church coexisting together and then also um, the different types of churches that these letters could still apply to today. All right, thank you, Brian, very much. Uh, very thoughtful question. I really appreciate that. Uh, all right, and we have another question here from Sharon. Sharon says, um, "Talking, we, we talked about Ishmael and whether that was a work of the flesh or a plan. And here, Sharon has this question. So God had not planned for Ishmael to be born? God, thank you for your question, Sharon. It's it's a really good question. And it's much more complicated than what you might think. Because what does God determine is going to happen? Where does God use his foreknowledge? Where does God give us choice? can you have the birth of a person something as significant as the birth of a person and nations that would follow after that that would all be a work of the flesh uh are god god formed people before they were born he, he plans their, their lives out acts chapter 17 says god puts people in times and places i think it's Acts 17 26 that god puts people in times and places so that they will grope for him. In fact, I wanna I wanna pull that passage up. I'm pretty sure I've got the right reference because it really is helpful for us to understand that God is the one who put puts people in places and nations, and Ishmael could very well be an application of that. So I think it's Acts 17, 26. Let's see, it might be twenty-seven. Let me see if I can get there. Alright, yeah, so it is twenty-six and twenty-seven. All right, so let's take a look at this verse here thinking about ishmael and the descendants of ishmael which were are a lot of arab people right and uh that that descended from him plus the jewish people who descended from him so here we have Acts 17 26 and 27 paul is preaching this to the athenians in athens on what is called mars hill or the aragopagus and in the middle of this, he says to them, this, this is Gentiles, he's not right talking to Jews here. He's talking to Gentiles. Uh, it says, and he made from every blood, every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth and determined their pre-appointed times and their boundaries. So he made from one blood, every nation of men who dwell on the face of the earth and determined their pre-appointed times and boundaries of their lives. So I think that we would say that we have the nations that came from from Abraham that were part of the work of Ishmael, and that would be God's plan, but I would think it would be because of God's foreknowledge. So we make decisions, and God knows the decisions that we make, and God can do his work out of decisions that are made that are even ungodly decisions. An example of that is Joseph saying to his brothers in Genesis chapter 30, right? You meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. They did it to bring about evil. You might have done something out of evil, but God can turn it into good and get his places for that. But this passage is even more powerful. It not only says that God predetermines boundaries and appointed places and times, but it says so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. God isn't far from each one of us, even from Ishmael, or, or, or I think, here he's talking to Athenians, he's talking to Gentiles. I think we could even talk about uh, tribes that never hear the gospel. He's not far from any of them. And he puts them in times and places that they would grope for him and find him. That's God's desire for them. So I think uh, that I would not be bold enough to say that God had not planned that to happen, That, but God through his foreknowledge can make all kinds of things happen. And God uses his foreknowledge to do the work that God wants to do. All right, Sharon. So thank you very much. I, I think that it's a complicated answer to this. It has to do with God's sovereignty, with God's foreknowledge. Um, and God knew all along from before the foundations of the world that Ishmael was going to be born. of uh, the, the 12 kings that were going to come from him, how they were going to rule, the population of the world after that. Um, none of this took God by surprise and God loves these people, loves Is- loved Ishmael and loves these people, okay? So, uh, thank you very much, Sharon, for your question. I really appreciate that. Uh, if you are here with us for the very first time, we're really glad you're here. We hope that you are truly blessed by the time that we spend taking questions and looking at them in the light of Scripture. If you have a question, then go ahead and submit the question. Write it out, read it a couple of times, make sure it makes sense, and then go ahead and submit it. We have another question from Jari. Uh, Jari, good to see you again. And Jari says, what if only Adam and Eve had paid the original sin and not the rest of us? Would Would we be hypothetically perfect? Hypothetical questions, Jari, are hard uh, to, you know, what would happen if this would have happened? If that would have happened? Would we have sinned? I'm gonna tell you what I think. There's no way for me to know, but what I think is that we would have been just like Adam and Eve. I think that we would have sinned and that we would have chosen to seek God our own way. And I I do not think that we would have been perfect. I think it would have been pushed down the road, maybe a little bit, and it would have infected all of mankind. because God gave us a choice. He gave man a choice because he loves man, wanted man to choose to love him. He gave man a choice. Good and evil being in the world as a result of a choice of not serving and loving God and then evil being in the world. And so, again, hypothetical questions are really, really hard, but I think that we would have gone our own way. I think we would have made those decisions. Um, Even when, when they didn't have a sin nature, they were tempted by the enemy, and the enemy was involved in this, uh, and so there was, um, there was the sin, and God knew it, and I think that eventually it would have happened anyway. That's what I think, all right? There may be some who would have some passages that they would think that that's not the way it would happen, but I think that that is um, what would have happened, all right? So I'm looking for another question here as I make my way down. It's good to see all you guys. It's good to see the interaction here. I love it. I love the interaction that we have uh, through the, uh, the comment section uh, that is here. If you have a question, then put a question mark in front of it, write out the word question, or put a question um, or just a cue in front of it so that I can easily identify it as I'm making my way down here. Um, I know sometimes I pass people's questions up Um, It's a lot easier for me if you have um, a question in front of it, all right? So I really do appreciate that. If you have a question, then go ahead and submit that question now. Uh, We have a question that is prepared uh, for us and that is, uh, can you prove the, actually, I'm gonna go to another one here um, because I am teaching on that, all right? so um i'm doing a little housekeeping here um because i'm teaching on uh why did god require old testament sacrifices that's not the one that i wanted let me see if i can um all right yes so here's here's the one i want so i'm teaching on forgiveness today and so i wanted to take some time to be able to talk about um, Jesus' statement. This is a question that was submitted a while ago. Um, what did Jesus mean when he said you must forgive seventy times seven? And I realize he's not this. This question doesn't just come in talking about forgiveness um, in general. Like okay, Jesus knows he wants us to forgive you know all the time, but forgiveness is hard. And everything that Jesus said about forgiveness uh, is radical. At least a great number of the things that Jesus said about forgiveness are radical. In other words, um, here he says, Peter says, how many times should I forgive? Seven, probably thought he was doing pretty good. And Jesus says, I say to you 70 times seven. In other words, forgive as many times as someone offends you. Uh, Jesus also says in John 17, I think it's a verse two, if someone offends you and you repent and they repent, forgive them. And if they offend you and repent, seven times in one day forgive them and so you think you keep repent you this person repents you forgive them and they keep doing it and they keep repenting um, that you are to keep forgiving them that's a shocking thing jesus also said if you don't forgive then you will not be forgiven that's another shocking thing so we have questions like do you have to repent in order to be forgiven for what I would call complete forgiveness, that would be a restoration of the relationships, then yes, there has to be repentance that's involved in it. I think it would be very hard. And you might be a person that can forgive someone who wrongs you, who doesn't say they're sorry. And I don't think that we should. There are times that people obviously feel bad about what they've done. Um, They give you some kind of an olive branch to show you that they feel bad for what they've done without asking for forgiveness. And I think that we should forgive them as well. I think that repentance is not only saying, can you forgive me? But it's also changing the way that you live and the different things that you do. And um, we have to forgive everyone because if we don't, there's a root of bitterness that grows up inside of us. But if someone doesn't repent, then there doesn't need to be a restoration of that relationship. And if somebody does something really horrible, then you are not obligated to restore that relationship. You have to forgive them. You have to let it go. Another shocking thing that Jesus said uh, was the parable about the man who owed a great number, a great amount of money, was forgiven. And then a man who owed him a little bit of money asked him to be forgiven and he would not forgive him. And so then his, it was reinstated. The debt was reinstated because of that. And so it's absolutely necessary for us to forgive. If we don't, then bitterness will arise in our hearts and that will taint everything and every relationship that we have that's around us. And we don't want that to happen. We want to uh, be able to have a right relationship with God. And in order to restore relationships, then I think that repentance does come into play. Uh, Years ago, I was listening to a talk show that was hosted by a psychologist who was Jewish and she said she didn't understand forgiveness with Christians because how could you forgive? She used this example, a father who molested his daughter, how could she forgive him and invite him over to Thanksgiving? I think there's a misunderstanding there. The father could repent and she could forgive him, but she doesn't have to restore that relationship. And if there's not repentance, she doesn't have to restore it either. If there's something that is so horrible and awful that's been done, Forgiving them, not holding bitterness in your heart, letting them go. What would that man have to have done for the man who owed him a little bit of money when he grabbed him by the neck and said, I'm going to throw you in debtor's prison until you pay every last penny back. Just had to let him go. And when you forgive, you just let it go. It's a hard thing to do, but it's a good thing to do. Whenever I teach on forgiveness, I will have people that will interact and say, I just find it so hard. This is such a difficult thing to do. I understand that. People offend us and they hurt us, and um, but we need to forgive them because you're the one who pays the price, and other people around you. When you don't forgive, because there are tainted, there are tainted relationships. It taints relationships if you have bitterness and a bitter heart defiles many. Um, If you have questions about restoring a relationship, it might be good to sit down and talk to a pastor at the church that you attend uh, and find out you know, be able to talk it through with someone. Um, I realize that when you talk about forgiveness, there's a lot of different things that are out there, a lot of different points that people make. And um, we wanna make sure that we're doing the things that God has called us to do, especially when it, when it comes to forgiveness. Um, that, yeah, I think that in order for there to be a complete forgiveness and restoration, like there's a forgiveness and a restoration with us in Christ, then there has to be repentance. I think that there can be forgiveness with, um, without that. All right, so that, and, and, and sorry, I was reading that when I, when I said that. I think that there can be forgiveness from us to people without repentance, but in order for there to be a restoration of that relationship, there needs to be some kind of repentance uh, that is there. All right, so thank you very much. Um, I see that there are some other questions that were submitted here. I didn't wanna pass over ones that have, been, um, that have been submitted. All right, so let me just go ahead and go back here and pick up, um, let's see. All right, so we have a question here from Christopher. Uh, Christopher, good to see you. Glad to have you join us. And uh, Christopher has a question about uh, the difference between testing and tempting. Uh, So, the Bible says, let no one say when they are tempted that they are being tempted by God because God tempts no one. So, the Spirit of God drives Jesus out in the wilderness to be tempted by the enemy. That was a test from God's perspective. God wants Jesus to pass it, which he does, and that test becomes a good thing in his life. Satan wanted to tempt Jesus and did tempt him. So, God may use things in our lives because he wants to test us. And the enemy uses them to turn them into temptations. Or it may turn into a temptation. It's not that God wants us to be tempted by it. Or it's not, uh, it's not that God intended us to be tempted by it. God was testing us. But that might turn into a temptation. So, Satan is the tempter. God is not a tempter. But God does test us. And those things can turn into temptations. We can end up finding ourselves being tempted by them instead of passing the test. May we pass whatever test that God gives us. So hopefully that uh, answers your question, Christopher. I really appreciate it. It's good to have you here. All right. Um, And we have another question uh, from um, Adam. Adam, good to see you. A question about evangelism and our duty in the Great Commission. So, he says, what are some easy and encouraging ways to witness to others? Thank you, Adam, for your question. I really appreciate that. Um, I think, first of all, taking a real concern in someone's life. Genuinely caring about them. When I am am developing relationships with non-believers, I am listening, talking with them, asking them questions. I'm taking a genuine concern for their lives. I want to share Christ with them. I'm looking for that opportunity to be able to do it. I just don't want to be guilty of doing it only to share Christ with them. I want to really love them, get to know them. There are people that don't know Christ that I like a lot. I I get along with them really well. In order to begin to share with them, one of the best things that you can do is ask questions, not just because you want to, you know, not just because you want to uh, you know, get, share Christ with them, but because you're genuinely concerned and really listen to those questions. Don't just listen to put your own thing in there to add your own, the only thing that you want to add in. Listen and ask them more questions. Listen to what they say. One of the best ways I think to open up about sharing about God is to ask people, do you believe in God? That's one of the best questions. When I got saved, I was asked the question, are you going to heaven? That's another great question. Bring up spiritual things. If they know that you're a Christian, then you can say things like, do you believe in heaven? Are you, are you do you think you're gonna go to heaven? What do you think happens after you die? Are you going to heaven? Those kind of questions and really caring for people really lay the foundation for you to be able to share. It can be really awkward. If you barely know someone and you are now going to witness to them and so you ask them some questions about their lives but you're not really taking an interest in them. They see clearly that you're just ta- you're just trying to witness to them which people go out street witnessing all the time just to witness to people. I just think that that's not as effective and, and I'm not saying people aren't good at it because some people are and have the gift of evangelism. I'm just saying it's not as effective as genuinely caring for someone, genuinely developing a relationship with them. And I think that's, that's what God wants from us as we minister to people. Um, I believe in friendship evangelism. My only problem with the, the old concept of friendship evangelism was you can only have so many friends, they would say, so you got to move on sooner or later. And I don't know why I want to give up on anyone that I'm making friendships with. I want to continue to pray for them. They, who knows that they won't at their last breath, like the man on the cross, um, accept Jesus in the, in the last few minutes of their lives. So thank you, Adam, for your question. That's a great question. Looks like we have time for uh, one more question here. So let's see if anyone else has submitted anything. Um, Selah Shalom, is that it? Yeah, Selah Shalom says, um, Copeland and Hagen, Joyce, all right? That's Kenneth Copeland, Kenneth Hagen, and Joyce Myers. Questionable, how much um Trinkets can they sell to make money? Just teach God's word and stop asking and taking so much money. Stop living like kings when many are, and I think you're going to go on to say, are struggling. Um, In the New Testament, there was a, I'm trying to think exactly how it was worded against those who were devouring widows' homes. And, And I think a lot of these false teachers, and I would call them false teachers because they're teaching prosperity. They're teaching that God, that you're gods. They're teaching that God wants um, wants you well and never to be sick. Um, they, So, I think that these these would be, and I think Joyce Myers would be prosperity light. Where Hagan and Copeland would be prosperity heavy. Um, yeah, these guys, C- 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 Kenneth Copeland brags about being a billionaire. I don't know that he is, but he brags about being a billionaire. There are a lot of problems with these false teachers, and um, I wouldn't want to be them in the last days. I just want to be faithful to God's word, to be able to teach it, and not try to take it and not take advantage of people. These guys are taking advantage of people. They're not the only ones to do it. Jim Baker did it. Um, there are just so many people that are out there. And that's why the, Jesus said, "In the last days, beware." There'll be doctrines of demons, people that teach things that tickle our ears. All of that is a part of what this is here. So thank you, um, Sila, Shalom, for that uh, question. I appreciate that. And I'm just going to give a quick look here. I've got a couple more minutes left if anyone else has submitted a question. If not, um, then I will uh, go ahead and sign out. It's been really good spending time with you guys here today. I hope that you guys have been blessed as we take time uh, to look over his word. I love the interaction uh, that's taking place uh, in our comment section. May you really and truly stay close to Jesus. Um, Go out of your way to forgive people. God has forgiven you. And if he's forgiven you such a great debt, then you wanna be like Christ and be one who is full of forgiveness. Now we're gonna be talking about that tonight in our Bible study. It starts at six o'clock, it's two hours from now. If you're in Tucson, you can go to a six o'clock at our East Campus, 715 at our West Campus. If you're online, it'll start at six o'clock. We'll have a little bit of worship before we get into the teaching, Um, but we are gonna be talking about Jesus, talking about forgiveness and repenting before we forgive someone. It's that passage and I really look forward uh, to covering that with you guys. All right, so it's good to see you. It's good to uh, have you join us today. Um, we will not have a Q&A this Wednesday night, but we will have another Q&A next Saturday, all right? Um, however, we will have a church service on Saturday night and we will be putting out a hot topic um, on Monday at six o'clock, all right? So God bless you guys. Have a great day. It's been really good talking with you. I will see you guys later on. Stay close to Jesus. Keep deeply in love with him and may God really and truly bless you.